Well, hello, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to share with you stories that empower you to do, to be, to achieve, and to impact more through your life. Maybe more simply said, I'm fired up to share with you stories that help you live inspired. After today's episode, I hope you share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your letter carrier, your dog walker, that stranger seated next to you on the bus ride, that lady working out right next to you, the guy checking out in front of you. In other words, share with everyone that you're listening and that you are subscribing to the Live Inspired podcast. Together as a Live Inspired community, we can change the world. And now, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. How do we react when things don't go the way our life desires planned? I want you to think about that for a moment. When there's traffic when you weren't expecting it, when there's a delay at the airport and you needed to get there on time, when the kids wake up and they're sick, when the dreams you had for yourself, the relationship you imagined being part of, the work, the life that you envisioned pivots in a radically different direction, how do you respond? How do you live forward? Well. This is going to be what we focus on during this podcast today. Our guest is the amazing author, leader, writer, her name, Susanna Kahalen. She is the author of Brain on Fire, which is, as many of you know, not only a remarkable book, but it spent more than a year on the New York Times bestselling list. Many of you have seen that book. Many of you have likely read it. She's going to share with us today, not only pieces of that book and elements of her current book called The Great Pretenders. But she's going to talk about what it's like to wake up with a radically different life than the one you went to bed with. It's an amazing story. She is on book tour while we are doing this interview. So you're going to hear a few cracks during this interview. You're going to hear the landline occasionally give way. As you know, we love to have our guests in studio with us, but occasionally when they are out beating the drum of life. Occasionally, we grab them on the line that they're able to take the call. That's the case here. But I'm telling you right now, it is worth it. You're going to love this interview. You're going to love her heart. You're going to learn how to handle and navigate the challenges that are absolutely going to show up in your life. So my friends, get ready to get on fire for the possibility of your life as I introduce you to one of my new friends, her name, Susanna Kahalen. Susanna, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be on. We are competitors in the on-fire space. <laughs> we are. We are. We really are. <laughs> you wrote a phenomenal book called Brain on Fire that I first became introduced to as my wife sat next to me on an airplane right years ago and would not talk to me for like four hours. <laughs> she, she was profoundly moved. And as we arrived, I think we were going to Florida. As I finally got my hands on the book, I realized why she was so moved. For those who have not yet got their hands on that book, give us a really quick snapshot of what the book was about. Sure. So this happened to me in 2009. I was 24 years old, kind of a budding uh, New York Post tabloid reporter, when all of a sudden I just started to feel entirely off. 
um, and it started with a kind of depression um, and then morphed very rapidly into psychosis and paranoia and hallucinations. And um, from that moment, I was hospitalized for one month of my life where various diagnoses were presented. Uh, One of them was alcohol withdrawal. Another one was bipolar disorder. A uh, third was schizoaffective disorder. And it wasn't until the end of that month when a kind of creative thinking doctor uh, asked me to draw a clock and I drew it well, halfway, basically mm-hmm. the 12 o'clock landing where the six should be, that he realized he was dealing with something that he was calling neurological or organic. And that prompted him to test me for a newly discovered illness called autoimmune encephalitis. Um, basically, when you're body's immune system targets and attacks the brain. And after I got that diagnosis, it took me about a year and a half to get back to where I am now. So there's the book in a snapshot. And yet I want to spend a lot more time unpacking what that experience was like for you and ultimately what it means for the rest of us. So it's 2009. Yes. You're 24. You're a reporter. You're living in New York. You're living the dream. You're at the New York Post. You've got a boyfriend. You've got a great group of friends. And then your life starts to unravel. When did you realize that this was more than alcohol withdrawal or whatever else they were trying to attribute this to? Well, you know, it's it's, it's interesting because you create the narrative in retrospect, right? So at the time, everything didn't make sense and I I couldn't have pieced it together, but it was in the process of writing the book that Mm -hmm. I now am able to look back. And I can pinpoint the beginning. It was this belief that I had bed bugs and I was obsessed with this idea that I had bed bugs. But keep in mind, this was 2009 in New York City, where (laughs) everyone thought they had bed bugs. It was like the scourge. You know, they were in, you know, movie theaters and on park benches. And it was kind of the thing everyone was freaked out about. But I I kind of took it to another level. And I had this kind of outsized reaction and this almost fixation on the idea, which is not my normal personality. Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't necessarily send you to a doctor. But in my kind of, you know, re-examination of what happened to me, that's the kind of beginning stage that I think that marks the beginning of the illness. Your father's house, the experience that happens there kind of blew my mind when I read through it the first time, that the paintings begin to come alive. Abraham Lincoln's bust starts following you around. And as you move into the bathroom, you are absolutely convinced that your father is hitting uh, his wife. Yes. Do, do yes. you remember this experience or is this now retold to you? No, no very vividly, very vividly. It's an interesting thing because so many of the things I remember from that time are not real. And that bothered me for a long time until I talked to a neuroscientist who explained to me why I remembered some of the kind of more unreality part of that is because they were high emotional content. So what you're describing is a scene. It was a kind of after a week at my mother's house of getting sicker and sicker without a diagnosis. My mom asked my father, they, they're very unhappily divorced. They're not very friendly. Mm-hmm. She asked my father to take me. And the new setting in my father's house really heightened my unraveling. Mm-hmm. And my dad is a big war buff and a collector of Civil War you know, memorabilia, et cetera. And there's one room, like the war room in his house that mm-hmm. I was in. And what you described happened. You know, I remember these kind of tufts of smoke coming out of the painting and he has a bust of Abraham Lincoln and it followed me with his eyes. And I remember all that and I didn't have the ability to communicate that, what I was seeing to other people. All I was was hysterical. And so it's it, it just kind of just strange feeling um, to come away from an experience and almost everything that you can recall with any certainty didn't actually happen. 
As you are going through that, Susanna, do you think that this is a real experience or are you thinking, my gosh, I'm losing my mind? No, I thought they were real experiences, especially um, during that time. I also heard with complete certainty, just as I'm talking to you right now, that my father was was, was hurting my stepmother. Mm-hmm. And I believed, you know, he was going to get me next. And that's when I barricaded myself in the bathroom and, was, and almost jumped out the window to escape him. I mean, it was it was deadly serious. In your TED Talk, you share this video of a woman who is in a hospital bed. She's crying out for nurses. She's using her remote control as a telephone. Can you tell our listeners uh, about why you played that video? Like, who, who is that person on that video and why'd you play it? It's so hard to kind of say who that person <laughs> is because in many ways, on, in the kind of literal sense, it was me. Um, this was hospital video taken when I was hospitalized at NYU for the month. And I was on an epilepsy floor because I had had unexplained seizures and they wanted to videotape them so they could actually see them physically. What, what, I, what, what was I looking like when I had these seizures? And um, so, so I have video footage of me hallucinating. And it's another kind of example of a time when I do remember um, mm-hmm. a good deal of what was happening. I, at that point, believed that my father didn't just hurt my stepmother, that he had killed her. And all of my tabloid experience that predated mm-hmm. that time kind of followed me into the hospital and followed me into this delusion and hallucination. And I actually believed that my father was arrested. He was on the television. I saw him on the television. I believed that the nurses were undercover reporters, that the patients were undercover reporters. I actually have video footage um, of me pointing at the television and saying, I'm on the news. Because I saw that. I was on the news. Um, so it is, it's a very bizarre, yeah. out-of-body experience to watch yourself that frightened. We don't ever have real footage of ourselves right. in that state. So it, it, in, in many ways, I kind of feel like that's not me, but obviously it is physically me. But it, uh, in, in some ways, I, I'm not there. You have that video and others. You've had the memories now shared by friends and family, doctors, nurses, others. You've got all the medical records also in front of you. As you piece back this story, as you put it back together, what is it like knowing that this is you? Yeah. To me, it's so no. surreal to look back and realize this very sick, beautiful young lady, it's you. You know, it's interesting because you have two different perspectives going at the same time that are hard to reconcile. You have the journalist, right. like, this is great. <laughs> you know, you're like, this is, makes for great stuff, you know? The worse it got, the better the story was. Right. So in a way, you're kind of chasing the worst things. And then you kind of have these moments where you realize, uh, this is me, you know? And so it, there was a big disconnect. And, and there were times, you know, with the medical records, it was easy to maintain that mm-hmm. distance because medicine has a distance. So there is a remove between patient and doctor. Um, and sometimes that remove is, is startling and the chasm is very, very wide. And so, you know, for example, the time when I was hallucinating on video, after that, I was put into a chest posy, which is basically restraint. Mm-hmm. And the description from the doctor's perspective is so cold and detached. You know, it's given, you know, antipsychotic, you know, injected with antipsychotic base. I'm, I'm, I'm summing it up. And then ch- pasted in a chest posy, hallucinating. You know, whereas I had this whole rich kind of deep experience that was not at all described in those kind of cold medical records. But so I had that. I was able to remain detached when I was using those as, as a source. But when I had to interview my family, yeah. especially, that's when the remove kind of started to fall. It became hard to maintain that emotional distance. What was the hardest part about talking to your family about that time? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it was actually in 
because they're so different. And so I had to approach them very differently. So my mom, mm-hmm. in a way of moving past this, and I, and I wonder how your parents were with you in, the, in, in kind of in your experience, but with mine, my mother made it, it was like, it wasn't that bad. It was never that bad. We knew you were going to be fine. That was her talking point. It was never that bad. We were going to figure it out. And I would have to almost convince her of the, how bad it was. I'd have to reopen those wounds that she had sewn shut yeah. every single time I interviewed her. So I'd have to bring my medical records with me and to show her, oh, this is how bad it was. So that was difficult. And then my father was the kind of inverse. My father believed it was worse than it was. You know, he thought I was in the hospital for three months, not one month, you know? And so in a way I had to kind of temper his own emotional experience of that, which was even more extreme. And, you know, and with my husband and with my boyfriend at the time, he had a more balanced view of what happened, but he was very emotional and and he witnessed a lot of um, things other people didn't like my first seizure. And he, you know, had a lot of the burden of care uh, for me when we, we didn't know what was going on. So he had a lot of kind of PTSD from that experience. So I always felt very guilty when I would have to say, okay, uh, Stephen, are you ready? We're going to have to go through this again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it, each person had their own issue in terms of recreating these things. Has it changed the way you interact with the three parties you just brought up? Has it changed the way you are a daughter to your mom or, or dad or the way you interact with your husband today? I undoubtedly, I mean, I think the experience itself of having this illness and then also writing about it and then, you know, spending all these years talking about it has, has changed me just across the board. So I definitely relate to them differently. And, you know, I've, I've gotten closer with my father from it and my mother and I, you know, for a period of time, I almost had to differentiate myself from her again. Like I was a teenager because when you're recovering from a brain illness, especially like this one, people have reported, and I can confirm this in my experience, that it, it's, it's almost as if you go through the stages of, of kind of rebirth. Mm-hmm. You know, you go, you know, you're a child again, and then you're a teenager again, and, and, you know, you're back home, and you're living with your mother, and, you know, you're back in your hometown, and there's a lot of angst, and, you know, almost like teenage angst yeah. that you have to kind of move through. So I moved through those patterns again. I didn't really go through that the first time with my mother because we've been very close. So that changed, but now it's as strong as it has ever been. Uh, you know, he had only been dating. We would we've been dating for about half a year when I got sick, and then all of a sudden, our relationship completely capsized, and he became more of a caregiver mm. than a partner. And so we had to relearn how to be equal partners in a relationship again, um, and and that took some time as well. But you know, each again had their own. <laughs> I say, you know, we've gone through the, you know, ups and downs, but, um, you know, I, I think in the end of the day, it's 100% strengthened each of my relationships individually with, with those people. Yeah. As your illness progresses, they take you not to a psychiatric center, but to a hospital. And it's one of the things you attribute for why you are alive today. Why? Why do you say that? Well, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question and it's one that, um, I explore in my new book, um, which um, has a lot of parallels. It's called The Great Pretender, and it, has a, it kind of is birthed out of my experience of Brain on Fire. And that is a question. I thought, why would I be less safe or less likely to recover if I were to be in a psychiatric hospital? What are the difference between a kind of real hospital and a psychiatric hospital? And, you know, in my personal case, I can tell you um, with almost certainty that I would not have had the same treatment because I have 
these various people I've encountered who I call my mirror images. And they are people who had the same illness but ended up in psychiatric hospitals because their symptoms of psychosis, you know, exactly the way I presented, were the only things focused on, whereas other symptoms like the seizures, I had tachycardia, high heart rate, and other kind of uh, physical symptoms were ignored. And in those cases, um, one case in particular, uh, she was uh, misdiagnosed for, for two years in and out of a psychiatric hospital. And I actually went to the facility where she was, not knowing she was there. Mm. And I, I did a talk about autoimmune encephalitis um, with a few doctors who were experts in the field. And one doctor in the audience um, who was who was taking care of her came up to us and said, we have a patient here who sounds like Susanna. And I found out two weeks later um, that she did have autoimmune encephalitis. And her doctor told me, you know, and I've kept up with her care in the, in the past several years. They told me that she would never recover and that she would probably operate the rest of her life as a quote-unquote permanent child, which was just heartbreaking to me. So she, in many ways, is this kind of other Susanna, this what could have been. Well, one of the reasons that you went one way and she went another is you had the bump in with a guy named Dr. Najjar. Talk about Dr. Najjar. Oh, my gosh. Well, Dr. Najjar is kind of the best type of, of physician. In some ways, it's his schooling. He um, is not only a clinician, but he's a researcher. So he has a kind of very broad look at the body, the brain, the interface between the two. And he, he just he can think about the cellular, the, you know, the cells, but then also the manifestation of the illness, which are the symptoms. I mean, he really thinks broadly, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think that that helps. But also, he's just a very kind-hearted, lovely person, which you know I think is key to it being works. a great doctor. Correct. You know, yeah. I mean, he really listens, and he he looks at you, and he doesn't just see you through the prism of whatever diagnosis you have. But at that point, when he came and saw me the rule-out diagnosis with schizoaffective disorder. Instead, he saw me as a person, as an individual. He listened to my parents. He heard the full story from my parents. He hand-wrote pages and pages of, uh, of observation. And, um, and that, that led to his, his major breakthrough in my case. So you're, you're, you're seeding the field, so we might as well start harvesting. What was the major breakthrough? What was it about uh, the way he saw you for the human being that you are and were that allowed him to make this breakthrough? You know, it's a question that uh, I've asked him multiple times, and I think that there's not maybe one clear answer. I think, you know, the broad portrait of me um, and the kind of history of the illness, the kind of acute onset, the, the lack of history in my personal life, though, if you ask certain people, almost any of us could have a history of psychiatric illness. You know, just come, you know, interview someone about the ups and downs in their lives, and you could create a narrative yeah. of of mental illness. But, um, you know, part of that was, was that, that it was also the kind of physical test that he gave, which was the clock, which I described, which was the kind of half clock to him. That was the kind of, uh, like a a piece of evidence in a puzzle, um, that didn't quite make sense to match the, um, schizoaffective diagnosis. And that led him to, to the next step, which was a brain biopsy and a, and a spinal tap, which confirmed the illness that he suspected that I had, which was autoimmune encephalitis. That's a turning point, but it's not a, it's not the finish line. Even as they begin treating you for what actually is wrong, the journey for Susanna is is full of incredible challenges. You know, I'm I'm really glad that you're you're and I and I imagine this comes from your own experience because 
sometimes there is a tendency to um, rush past that part, the recovery. For me, I actually, I think it's the most difficult part of your journey in some regards, because when you're really sick, you're, you're just sick, you're down for the count and you can't do much about it individually. It's, it's in the recovery that I think you have your greatest challenges. I know you're going to be okay in the long run, but for me, that's when your real heroism, the real bravery started showing up. That means a lot to me because for me personally, the recovery was by far the hardest part of the whole experience. And it was, it's, there are so many philosophical questions that start to emerge. You know, who am I? I mean, what is, what is myself now? Mm-hmm. Am, am I different than I was before? Will I ever be the same? You know, will I, am I, you know, all the things that I felt I was capable of before, will I be capable of this after? You know, I mean, there are so many questions that emerge. Um, and then there's just the question of it in the immediate, you know, immediately getting out of the hospital, you have a diagnosis, right? I had this long-winded, the full term is anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis, right? Whatever that means. I had no idea. I remember I asked my mother, I was Googling it, and I asked my mother what it was, and I actually wrote down auto body encephalitis. <laughs> and I got, you know, car deal, you know, like what, what's an, what's an, I didn't know what an autoimmune really, I didn't really understand that, mm. you know? And, and then, I, and I had the, you know, the acronym NMDA wrong. I mean, it was, I didn't, none of it made sense to me. So what does it mean to have a diagnosis? And what does it mean to have a diagnosis where only 216 people had it before you did? I was a 217th person. And so there are so many questions of what is life now? Um, and, and when you, when you kind of stare into that great unknown of, mm. of recovery, it, it can be, it can be overwhelming. You're able to look back at pictures of you during that time. And in particular, you share in the book the story of you being at a wedding. T- tell our listeners yes. about, about that experience and how it showed you <laughs> how far you still had to go. And it's, the wedding is, is, is a very bizarre, again, kind of strange um, experience because the wedding was my first party after I was sick. I, I got to go out. I was going to be social. And it was, it was exciting. And I was actually meant to be a bridesmaid, but I was kind of uninvited to be a bridesmaid because I was sick. And I remember feeling so hurt, not because I wanted to be the bridesmaid so badly. No one really wants to be a bridesmaid. <laughs> but um, I felt insulted, you know, that, that maybe that someone thought I, didn't, I couldn't even do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't even do that. And so I remember feeling really distraught about that. But instead of retreating, I, you know, returned the bridesmaid outfit at Ann Taylor. And found like the pinkest, brightest, tightest Ann Taylor dress, which is really hard because Ann Taylor is not that kind of place. <laughs> but I found one. <laughs> and I remember dancing all night and I drank champagne for the first time since I was sick. And I was just like, I just had a wild time. I loved it. And it's only in the retelling where I had to actually go back to the various other participants, you, know, you know, people who went to this wedding and saw me and observed me. Do I realize that? The people people around me were seeing an entirely different thing than when it, than what I was experiencing. You know, where I thought I was having this great time and dancing all night and you know looked great. Other people told me that they felt sorry for me, that there was a lot of pity, and um, that I was um, had I had a kind of perma smile on that they could see the wheels moving in my brain when I was trying to make small talk. And and one woman even went up to my mother and said. Um, it's so sad to see Susanna, you know, she's lost her spark. Yeah. 
And I, in my mind, I was like, I was like a huge sparkling, like I was sparkling everywhere. You know, I thought I was having the time of my life, but I really was not, I did not look like that. And so, you know, having this opportunity to retell my story had so much, there were so many gifts in that, but there were also these strange moments when you kind of realize that sometimes the, the way you think you're presenting is not the way people mm. see you at all. In my story, I think my wife is in some regards an untold hero. That the fact that she not only like loves me for who I am, but what I've been through and, and the journey we can have together going forward. And I think in your book and in your story, your boyfriend, you've, you'd only yeah. been with him for six months. That's nothing. And six months in, you completely change radically and you remain radically changed for an awfully long time. D talk, talk about your boyfriend for a while. Talk about your <laughs> husband. Talk about what, what allows this guy to stick around and love this girl who's changing, but he's not giving up on. You know, it's it's one of these things that's another mystery to me in so many ways. And I've asked him, and he, you know, because I love you, you know, that's his response. But I think personally that he is the, he's a very quality, moral, decent person. And I think even if he hadn't loved me as much as he does, you know, you know, we have two kids, and we've had twins. You know, we're we're a solid family unit. Mm -hmm. But even if that wasn't meant to be, he would have been there because he is that kind of person. It was not just the love he had for me. It's the person who he is. That's ultimately, that's my view of the matter. He has different take, but I feel like I, I have a better take than he does. <laughs> I don't care what his take is. I, I like yours yeah, much more. <laughs> and I wish there were more people like him. That That is a me remarkable too. take. So at, at what yeah. point did you consider turning all that you'd been through into something that the rest of us could learn from? You know, it's actually very soon after I was sick. So I um, I went to a Grand Rounds in uh, at NYU where my doctor was presenting about my case. And I actually took a friend who was a journalist um, with me. And I remember we came late and I didn't realize, I thought, is that me? You know, I don't know. And then, you know, is he talking about me? Because he was kind of detailing some story that sounded like mine. And at one point he even put up a slide that was a picture of my brain because mm. <laughs> he took a brain sample and, and and I realized at that point that he was talking about me he said something to the effect of a 24 year old you know blah 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 now she's doing better and I thought that that's my brain it was a very <laughs> strange experience but my um my friend who was the journalist saw this presentation and, and said to me you have to write about this right. and I have to be honest uh, you know I I wanted to at some level I was hoping someone would say that to me um I, I think in some level I thought it's is this interesting outside of myself yeah. or is this, you know, and I did, I, I, I think I needed the outside confirmation that this was something worthy um, of, of deeper, of a kind of a deeper investigation. And um, so she actually mentioned it to my boss at work and he basically was like, all right, yeah, write this. You, <laughs> you know, it was Tuesday, you know, the deadline's Friday. <laughs> Banged out 1600 words. Um, I, I look back at that and there's a lot of mistakes because I don't remember a lot, a good deal of what happened. There's a lot of false memories, but um, it was the beginning of what would become Brain on Fire, the book. Well, Brain on Fire, the book, spends a year on the top of the New York Times list. Un unbelievable. Turns into a full-length movie. I, I think most impressively, we would all agree, an invitation to the Live Inspired podcast for Susanna. Yes. But <laughs> when you look at all that this story has done, what's been the best part of the success that it's brought your way? I mean, undoubtedly, it, 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 it's been the lives that it's touched. I had no idea. I mean, I knew when I was working on the book and after I had written that piece and the response 
the reader response that I got to that piece. I knew that there was a need that mm. this story would be told, a greater need than just uh, my own interest in mining my story or mm. my own journalistic interest in, in telling a good story. Like there was a greater need. Um, and that has been fully realized. You know, now I, I, I consistently get emails and phone calls and indirect interactions with people telling me that my story led to someone's diagnosis, their own diagnosis, their wow. daughter's diagnosis. Just the other day, uh, two days ago, I, I did a talk um, and one woman came up to me and said that um, that her daughter was an intern working at a psychiatric hospital um, and she was, she was going to be a she was going back to school to be a psychologist, but basically she was doing volunteer work. And she had read my book, Young Kid, mm-hmm. and there was a, a, a girl there who, again, much like the story I told before of my mirror image, seemed like maybe this could be the story. you know. And so she mentioned it to a nurse. She knew better than to mention it to a doctor. She mentioned it to a nurse, and the nurse kind of pushed for a test. I think it was, in this case, spinal tap. And she had autoimmune encephalitis. And so this young woman who has no clinical experience was able to help someone get a diagnosis because she read my book. So stories like that have been, by, you know, without a doubt, the, you know, the most, um, I mean, I didn't, I never could have seen that coming, but it's mm. been the most, I mean, I can't even really put, properly put in the words. So, well, it's how save, literally saving lives. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back something you just shared a moment ago and, and uh, put you on the spot. You said uh, she knew not to tell the doctor. Yes. Tell me, I can <laughs> interpret what that might mean, but tell our listeners yes. and explain yourself on that one. Tell, well, why is it important know, for her not to tell the doctor? There's two things. One, um, everyone who works in a hospital system knows the people who really run the show are the nurses. <laughs> so if you want things really done, you need to get the nurses on your side. That's A. B... <laughs> Not this is this is I'm speaking in a kind of universal way, but it's not, and that's not necessarily fair. But um, a lot of doctors will not want to hear from a volunteer intern mm. about a possible diagnosis, and probably won't be open to really listening. And um, and and again, this is not across the board, but I would say that that's often the case with many doctors. And I will take it a, a, a step farther. Many parents, and many politicians, and yes. many writers, and podcast hosts, and leaders in life. I, th- I think there's value in uh, challenging everything that you thought you knew. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Y- years ago, I was in China with a group of Australians, and one of the hands that went up was John. If you could go back in time and blow out the flame and save yourself from going through this, would you do it? And I had to think about it for a moment, but my answer kind of surprised me. I said, you know, I, I would go through all this again. Well, I'm going to ask you the same question. I know it's one you've been asked before, so you are primed for it. But if you could go back in time, Susanna, and blow out the flame and save your brain from going on fire, would you do it? You know, I have to say, I want to, I will answer my side, but I want to ask you about yours. Your, your experience involved in incredible physical pain. Mine did not. Mine was psychic pain. Mine was, it was a different kind of thing. So that surprises me mm. because I feel like pain is a whole nother level of experience that would be, I mean, that's extraordinary that you would say you would go through it again. I think physical pain is way easier to weather than emotional or spiritual or psychological. Way easier. It, it doesn't make it less miserable in some regards, but I, I think um, there's no pain greater than the invisible scars. So, so interesting. although I have yeah. no fingers on my hands today and I walk with a limp and I have some physical challenges still, I'm emotionally and psychologically whole. 
and spiritually whole. And I'm, yeah. I'm really grateful for that. I also think when you are physically broken, people are more likely to show some compassion. Yes. When you are yelling at a television that you are on TV when you're really not, and you're saying that my father has killed my stepmother, people are giving you zero compassion. Doctors are looking at you simply as a diagnosis, not as a human being. So I, I think I got a lot of love and compassion and healing that maybe you missed out on during that month in hospital. Beautifully put. I mean, absolutely beautifully put. And it's such a, it's such a wise observation. When things are seen as broken, they are treated in a way that's compassion typically. Correct. But when it's invisible, when you can't see it, it becomes scarier for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons. And even though I was, it was only a month of being on that side of that label, um, I would undoubtedly was, was, was treated differently um, and with a cold detachment right. that I think is very common in people who have, um, you know, quote unquote, psychiatric conditions. But in terms of to answer to your question about would I do it again, would I undergo that experience again? When I was first asked that question, I said no. Hmm. Then I thought about it and I thought that was that knee jerk reaction wasn't correct because especially even since I was first asked that question, which was right when my book came out. Since that, so many amazing gifts have come my way and so many, you know, intervening in people's lives, meeting incredible people. You know, my life has changed in all these miraculous ways that I would never take it back mm. now. You use the word miracle. Do you, do you view your life, your diagnosis and your recovery as a miracle? Absolutely. And even more so now, um, you know, so after Brain on Fire, um, and I, you know, I, I was very much aware that I was a medical marvel in many ways. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I realized the full extent until I started this other book, this new book, The Great Pretender, which in a way, in many ways, tries to situate my experience with autoimmune encephalitis into the modern history of psychiatry. Because in many ways, this illness is, is a psychiatric condition with a known physical cause. So, you know, w- once I started to think about the condition that way, I realized that not only am I a medical marvel, but I am an extra, I'm an extraordinarily lucky mm. person. I have a cure and I have a treatment. And most people who um, suffer from serious mental illness, you know, may have a treatment that they have to, you know, live with the rest of their lives. And many still look, search for answers and, and, and find answers very limited. Well, let, let's pivot into what you're working on now, The Great Pretender. I think it's an awesome title. How'd you come up with oh, it? Thank you. Well, you know, it kind of came to me in kind of various ways. There's, there's kind of three kind of interpretations of the, t- of the title. So the first interpretation is um, most closely linked to brain on fire. So mm-hmm. brain on fire is an auto, you know, discussion of an autoimmune disease. And um, autoimmune diseases are in these classes of illnesses that mimic psychiatric conditions, right? And they're called, so they're called the great pretender illnesses. Other examples of that might be lupus or mm-hmm. um, syphilis, or, you know, a host of other conditions that have, again, known physical causes, but can appear to be psychiatric. So there was kind of that interpretation. And then it's the kind of uh, discussion of the, the main central part of the book, which revolves around uh, a group of people in the 1970s um, who underwent this kind of daring experiment where they um, volunteered to go undercover in psychiatric hospitals across the country. And all they did was say, I hear a voice that says thud, or I hear a voice that says empty. And just based on that, all eight were diagnosed with serious mental illness 
seven of which were diagnosed with schizophrenia. One was diagnosed with manic depression. And it became, how do you prove your sanity once you've been kind of labeled insane? Um, and it, it was it was a kind of it was a huge embarrassment for the field. And so that's where the second interpretation of the great pretender comes in, because these people were you know kind of very in this kind of basic literal sense, pretending to have a, a serious mental illness. And then um, as the book um, continues and my investigation of this study, which I became very yes. obsessed with, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> most likely because of my own, I think because of my own personal experience, Correct. which really colored every page of this book, I became obsessed with this experiment and really wanted to track down what, what really happened to these eight people. And at that point, the great pretender takes on a new meaning, which I will leave at that, I guess. <laughs> we can get into that, too. But um, it is, it, the book is meant to be a mystery and a thriller. So I always struggle with how much to tell. Well, then I struggle with how much to ask because I have a yes. whole bunch of questions I want to learn more about. Why, Go ahead. What, do it. I, I think we should just do it. <laughs> what, there are some shocking parts at the end that I don't want to talk about because I, think, yes. I do think the readers want to work their way through it on their own, in their own time. Okay. But talk about Dr. Rosenhan. Yes. So Dr. Rosenhan was, um, he was the architect of this study, which was called On Being Sane in Insane Places. And it was published in Science, which is one of the most prestigious academic journals in the world. And he was um, this very charismatic individual. Um, he he had this deep, booming Orson Welles-like voice. Mm-hmm. And his his students describe him as almost having this seductive quality. You wanted to please him. And he was the kind of professor who'd, you know, he had the leather elbow pads and he'd walk around campus and he'd swagger around, but <laughs> like he owned the place, you know? And I, unfortunately I, I've never met him because mm. he died a year before I started researching this topic, but I really liked him. You know, I really started to kind of fall in love with this very interesting man who created this study that is so near and dear to my heart. Because in many ways, it exposed many of the same things that I experienced in my brief period of time of being misdiagnosed. He's just, in many ways, a kind of mysterious, very alluring figure for me. Well, his story, fingerprints, come all the way through this book. It's a phenomenal read. What did the research for the book teach you? Like, what, what, What surprised you most as you went through his story, his research, what came out of it? the impact on people like Harry and uh, everyone else who's Bill Dix and all these people who are part of this story. What surprised you most about your, uh, your research? Cause you know, so the research took six years yeah. to do this book. And it was so interesting because brain on fire took one year. It was kind of written in a, in a fever. Um, and the great pretender not only talks about this famous study that had a huge effect on kind of so many different things, including diagnosis in general, but also in deinstitutionalization in a lot of the push of, of closing psychiatric hospitals across the country. It, had, it was a little study with eight people, but it had a, a kind of a massive effect. So in kind of trying to parse out that massive effect, uh, I went down a lot of rabbit holes and spent a lot of years researching American history through the lens of, of psychi- psychiatric care, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what really astounded me was how... So many things that are accepted at face value often are far more complicated than they appear. And and every time I pulled back a layer of this study and the history surrounding it, I realized that none of the none of these issues were clear cut. And there there's so many complications that in Brain on Fire, it felt so simple in so many ways. I had an autoimmune disease. It was treated with steroids. 
I got better. So many issues that I started to uh, uncover with Rosenhan's study actually made me start to think about my own experience very differently too. So that was the biggest lesson for me was that kind of you dig the, the deeper you dig, the more complicated these stories become. You know, we, we uh, Susanna, have seven questions that tether all of the complicated stories of our lives together as one. So a- every guest on the Live Inspired podcast has been asked these seven questions. And I think you are the perfect audience, oh. I think, to, to be asked these questions and answer them for our audience. So I'm ready. You are indeed, my friend. So question number one yeah. is, besides Brand on Fire and The Great Pretender, what, what is the best book you have ever read? You know, this one was, I, because I listened before, I just, this one was really hard for me because I feel as if I've had different best books in different phases of right. my life. And I, I feel that um, probably the, the one that sticks with me the most is, is probably from, this is a pre-illness, Susanna. This is one that I just love dearly, which is Wuthering Heights. <laughs> it's just, it's just one of the most, beautifully written, but also just emotive books. And it makes me feel like I'm a teenager, again, in love with literature. Wow. It really was one of the things that made me fall in love with writing. So I, I, I was thinking about all the different kind of cool things I could say. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going with Wuthering Heights because I love that book so deeply. And I read it, you know, I've read it probably 20 times. And, and it just it's one of those books that just gets deeper and deeper with every reading. So in in history, there's A.D. and B.C. And in individual history, it's pre-marriage, pre-divorce, pre-loss, whatever it is. But we all have these like turning, like boom, this huge turning point. You said this was a pre-Susanna diagnosis story. (laughs) Can you look at your life as almost like pre and post? Is that the way you almost view it? Absolutely. It's it's like almost it takes on like sepia tones when I talk about pre, you know, And, and then technicolor you know, when I talk about the time when I was sick and then it's, then it's mean. And then I start thinking more as you would normally think of your past. So I imagine everyone, almost everyone has a, I hope. an AD and a BC, right? I mean, I, I mean, you certainly do. And I imagine many people listening have a moment in their life and, it, and those moments can be very positive. You know, it can be a wedding, you know, it can be the birth of a child. I think I'm, I'm having, you know, I just had twins mm-hmm. nine months ago. <laughs> and that's definitely going to be a thing that's broken my life up, you know, into before and after as well. So it need not be negative, I think. I think it can all be also very positive. Absolutely. And the negative can become transformed into positive in time. Exactly. And so for our listeners right now, I just, I beg them to hold on to that truth. Qu- question number two is what's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child? that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, I think that I had, I had a very strong sense of tenacity hmm. when I was a kid and um, almost to a kind of, if you go extreme, <laughs> I think I was very stubborn. Um, and I think that that can be a negative thing, but hmm. I also feel um, that side of me has been tempered a bit as I've aged. And I don't, and I, I, I feel that that could be, I could utilize that in my in my career, in my work, in my daily life a little bit more. A little bit more of that little kind of strong-willed Eloise type <laughs> personality that I had when I was a kid. I could I could kind of I could use a little bit more. Susanna, of that, I think reading your books, fighting through what you've been through, two best-selling books. I, I think oh. you've got quite a bit of tenacity, including nine-month-old twins on both arms yeah. today while we're doing I, this interview. 
But you didn't know me when I was... <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a wild person to know. Maybe too much. <laughs> if your apartment, your home caught fire and all living things, your children, your husband, your animals are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one thing, what would you grab? Probably the journal that I kept when I was sick. That would probably be... It's a journal that has my recollection of my father's. I would, I would grab that. What's the meaning of that to you these days? It's almost like an tethering to the, when you write about yourself in that way, you kind of lose that original self. Does that make sense? It does. You've recreated that person. And having not only my recollection of that, and, and kind of, it's set in stone of who I was then and how far I've come since then. And also it's my father's recollection of that time, which is, is so deep and, and so um, spiritual. and. Um, it's just, it's so meaningful to me. So Mm. those two things, even though I'm saying two things, they're really one, they're in one document, I'm going to say, (laughs) but that's what I would take. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to spend that day with? Gosh, this one is hard too, because (laughs) I mean, living or dead, I mean, I would say, I feel like I'm going to have to go with another kind of English literature. Um, I would love to know. I would love to to talk to, to Shakespeare. Mm. Why not? I mean, first of all, maybe he gets some ideas for another book, which would be fun. It would be a tragic <laughs> novel. You may, you may not want to go yeah. as deep as Shakespeare would force. Right. <laughs> but yeah, maybe I can get, maybe I can steal some ideas and come back. And, and I don't know if you saw that, that movie where the yesterday where he gets, the Beatles don't exist. And mm-hmm. then you get to, I'd have maybe a kind of moment like that. So maybe I'll do that. <laughs> if you, Honestly, if you could sit next to Shakespeare, what do you think your first question for Shakespeare might be? I feel like, did you really write all those? Or did you have like, you know, they yeah. say that he had help and that there is maybe like a, uh, you know, a woman waiting in the wings who was writing part of it. I'd like to, I'd like to get a straight answer about that. Me too. Yeah. What's the best advice Shakespeare or in, anybody else in your life has ever given you? So what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, I'm not going to say best ever, but I'm going to say one that right now seems particularly um, salient to me. Uh, it's my doctor, Dr. Najjar. Mm. Um, he said to me, you have to look backwards to see the future. Wow. And I think that that is, I mean, it's timely. Uh, I also think that it's an uh, acknowledgement and um, a respect for our history. Uh, and, and I think that it also is a push to make sure that we are understanding our history correctly, because you can't move forward unless you really understand what, where you've come from. So that to me was one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten. Well, and, and I'm not Shakespeare. I know that might shock you, but I am not Shakespeare, but I'm telling you right now, when you write a book on Dr. Najjar's life, I'm first <laughs> in line at the book signing. Cause I, I oh, think nice. I'm serious. This guy has so much wisdom oh, in the way 100%. he sees people just see them for who they are. And who they could exactly. be. He's amazing. He's an extraordinary person. In fact, you would you would get along with him so deeply. He and he's just um just a wise and wonderful yeah. person. That I feel lucky that you know in so many ways that my path not only just because he saved my life, <laughs> right. but because we we know he's a close friend and he's someone who I I respect on on so many deep levels. And he's a great thinker and not just a great clinician. And I think that's what makes him a mm. great clinician. Susanna, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I would, I would tell her to stop obsessing about how you look and about how um, 
much you weigh and things that in retrospect, I mean, it's important to, when you're in that mindset, it's so important to you and it takes over so much of your brain space and it's a waste of time. And I wish that I didn't devote so much of my psychic energy to, to things like that. Um, and I, even now I, I, I have to remind myself of that because, right. you know, again, I, I just, had, I, I had twins and my body changed. And even when I was sick and recovering, that's what I focused on because it was easier to focus on, you know, the fact that my body had changed than my, than that, the fact that my brain was, my brain had changed too. Um, and I just wish I could just counsel my 20 year old self and mm. tell her like, stop. You know, there are more important things. Susanna Cahalan, it has been said that all great people and authors and moms can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I would like my one sentence to read. I think she was curious, she was fair, and she was compassionate. Mm. Susanna, you obviously, after reading two of your works, are indeed curious, fair, compassionate, bright, articulate, and incredibly powerful. I, I want to thank you for sharing your life with us, not only in your works, your your words, but today through the Live Inspired podcast. Oh, well, it was an absolute honor and a pleasure. And I just, I, I just want to thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. This is, this is this has been phenomenal. The book is called The Great Pretender. The prequel, if you will, to it is called Brain on Fire. Both are awesome. Susanna, again, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. My friends, that is Susanna Cahalan. My name is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspired podcast. I'd love to hear from you send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.